Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Michael Betts. Uh, He's a professor of microbiology at the Penn Institute for Immunology, Penn meaning Pennsylvania. Uh, He normally studies T lymphocyte function and the role that these uh, cells have in controlling and eliminating viral pathogens and, you know, being a part of the immune system. So, Michael, thanks for coming. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. Today, um, instead of going into just purely your research, I wanted you to be a part of the uh, virus book I'm putting together. So I'm just going to ask you a series of questions around that. And again, you know, if you can't answer one, it's okay. No problem. So Okay. Uh, before we do that, can you just in your own words, uh, give a little bit of background on your work and just the current research that you're working on right now? Sure. So my, my interest is in understanding how humans uh, combat uh, pathogens with the uh, immune responses and particularly uh, adaptive immune responses, which would be uh, t- in this case, T cells and B cells, but mostly we work on T cells. And uh, we've historically focused a lot on on studying immunology in the context of HIV infection. Um, more recently, we've, uh, in addition now, are studying, uh, of course, SARS-CoV-2 infection, uh, and also uh, working uh, in areas of really basic human immunology, trying to understand how T cells move around in the body, what, what happens to them when they go into different places, which then all pertains to how those cells will function in response to uh, an invading viral pathogen or a pathogenic challenge, uh, which uh, takes place really at any potentially many different areas of the body. Um, so, so trying to understand how these cells um, function uh, at those different sites. So in regards to these questions, uh, the first one I had is that, do you know of any organism that doesn't have viruses? Do you think that they accompany all types of life? Hmm. I am certainly unaware of an organism that does not have uh, some type of viral uh, pathogen or a related type of of of, uh, of I can't I don't I wouldn't call them an organism a, a related thing, um, <laughs> yeah. So so no, I I am unaware of of an organism that does not uh, is not subject to to viral infection. Are there any uh, organisms that you know do have viruses where it amazes you that they do have them, or that the viral action uh, causes the organism to do just really unusual things that sticks out in your mind? Well. I guess the only the only place where, you know, going back even to the first question, I I, I guess I, I I'm a little bit unaware of the biology of this, and certainly there would there would be many people who would who would have expertise. But I guess if you want to sort of be amazed about something, I, I would assume that um, uh, these types of bacteria, which we call extremophiles, would would also be subject to viral infections, bacteriophage, and, and and I guess the, the amazing part of this, if that's true, and I assume it would be, um, is, is that the viruses, uh, the viral particles uh, are able to also uh, remain intact in, in sort of these extreme environments, such as, you know, 
uh, extreme salt environments or extreme heat environments where, where you have these, these um, different extremophile bacteria. So, so that would be a, probably a pretty interesting place to, to, to learn about them. Um, That's true. Yeah. I mean, multicellular organisms that, you know, I mean, uh, I think any place where there's a multicellular organism, you're, you're going to have viruses. There's, there's, you know, so, so none of that would particularly amaze me um, just because it, it's kind of expected. And I guess there's viruses that predate on other viruses, you know, giant ones. And then uh, I guess they're called like virophages. So it seems to be multi-level. Certainly some of them can become quite large. Um, the pox viruses, for example, are quite large. I think there's, there's some that are even larger than the pox viruses. I honestly have to say, I, I don't really quite know the, you know, from the evolutionary scale of, of, you know, uh, I would certainly expect this, the, the super simple viruses to have come first. Um, and the other ones have probably accumulated uh, their size through interactions with hosts and commandeering things that they, that, that were beneficial to them. Yeah. Yeah. That leads into a, a question later on, but we'll ask it now, uh, which do you think came first cellular life or viruses and why? Well, I think, you know, some type of replicating forms of DNA or, or RNA, uh, I think there's, you know, there's a fair amount of research in this area, you know, self-replicating forms of these things, which, which I guess in some ways is almost like a virus. Um, but I, I, my guess would be, again, I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but but my expectation would be that, that these, if you want to classify these replicating forms of, of genomic material uh, as, a, as a viral predecessor, I would, I would guess that comes first. They, they would be highly subject to their environment and having the right components around their environment to, to, to replicate. That would be my, my guess uh, on this. And do you think that viruses are alive? And why or why not? No, I, I do not, and and that's that's simply because you know, in my opinion, they're they're, they're basically machines, um, and 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 that's they do not have um, you know classical things like organelles and 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 things that, that 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 cells even the primitive cells would have. You know, they do have membranes, but they take those from the cell that they're uh, budding from. So the types that have membranes. Um, you know, they're, they're never autonomous. Um, they always require something from, from a host cell. Um, so no, I would, I would not classify them as being alive, uh, whatsoever. You know, they have, they have, they have components, they have components necessary for life like DNA or, or RNA. Um, but, but themselves no. Well, do you think they could be contingently alive only when inside of a cell and when they're in virion stage, not alive, you know, like a, a seed, we could say is eh, dormant. It leads to a living thing in the right soil and right conditions. But if you think of a tree that has seeds and that's how it spreads, is the seed alive and the tree is alive? Yeah, uh, no, I don't. I, I, I mean, I, I think, I think really, you know, the, the virus is, uh, no, I don't, I, I don't think it, one, I would not consider the virus alive even when it's an infecting a cell. I think it's, I think it's a, it's a it's a combination of of proteins and genomic material that are, that are interdependent, um, and and therefore you know that they would have to be interdependent interdependent for the assembly process to take place inside of the cell and so on, um, and and each of these components has uh, somehow uh, evolved um, to interact with each other and and form these complexes. Um, 
but no, I, I, I don't consider them alive even in that context. You know, I, you know they're kind of, I mean, I see it as alive. That's the thing you can, you can take it out and there are cells in there that will replicate on their own um, and form a plant. Um, the virus, if it's just sitting on the table is not gonna do that um, without having, uh, so, so in that sense, it, it's a seed and it's not a seed, but, but I would not consider it alive because it does not have that ability without uh, any assistance whatsoever to, to replicate. Well, if you look at um, you know the, the shape and action of viruses, they have many different entry mechanisms into cells and many different shapes. Uh, you know, some are rods or spiked balls or you know the T four bacteriophages like a moonlander. How do you think that variation occurs, and you know how could they be so diverse? That's a fantastic question, and and you know it's but of course the answer is nobody nobody knows how how that would have arisen. If, if you think about the shape of the of the virus itself is is essentially meant to protect the genomic material inside, um, and and that essentially you need a self-assembling complex of proteins, and those proteins can assemble in many different ways, and there are many different structures that could arrive at a in an, at an enclosed space, you know, if you, there, there certainly are, there's families of viruses that have sort of shared relationships, the way that they work. You have, you have the icosahedrals, you have the, the moon landers, as you say, um, and, and they're all essentially designed to protect and as, as necessary, deliver that genomic material uh, to the cell. So like the bacteriophages, you know, there's a really cool way that they do this. Um, essentially injecting the genomic material in, in, into the, the bacteria. And, and, you know, that's all essentially kind of like spring-loaded mechanisms of these proteins that, that once they get the proper trigger, it just sort of things just snap like a mouse trap almost. You know, you just have this sort of consequential downstream effects that shoots the genomic material into the, into the bacteria. And, and, and even the, you know, the, the eukaryotic viruses have, you know, almost the same conceptual methods, uh, HIV, for example, you, you, you have this, you know, the, the envelope and, and interacting with, with the CD4 and the CCR5 co-receptor, and that in, induces this protein conformational change that essentially shoots the, the genomic material uh, the, the, into, the, into the cell. So, so it kind of all, the, despite the, the, the fact that some of them look a little different, they, they're all functionally related uh, in, in, in terms of strategy as to what they want to do. Yeah, is there any particular entry mechanism for a virus that, I don't know, again, surprises you or you think is really cool? Is there any particular one that you know of? Oh, I mean... Honestly, Richard, every single one of them is fascinating in and of itself. Just how how on earth could could you know this particular set of circumstances be be built upon to do what it does? You know, HIV. You know, the one I I, I would certainly know the most about it is fascinating in 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 the level of complexity that that has evolved in in, in on the virus to not only allow entry of that genomic material into the cell, but, but at the, in the meantime, to protect that virus from the consistent pressure of the host uh, immune response, you know, antibodies, you know, you have this conformational changes that take place in, in, in the envelope like a protein that, that there's only certain formations that are ever seen during the entry process, whereas otherwise the immune response rarely ever would see, see these things. 
you know, and, and it requires multiple proteins being involved and it, it, every single one of them is fascinating in and of itself, to be honest. Yeah. Well, HIV is interesting. So far as I know, it endogenizes into uh, our DNA, right? Yes, as a retrovirus, yes, it does. And there's other other types that do that as well, you know, in the retrovirus family. There are other viruses that form stable episomal circles. There's some, you know, like flu that's just, that doesn't do that. It just sits there and has all its different strands and, you know, make makes the viral proteins from multiple strands. So, you know, different strategies. It, it sort of depends on, and this sort of like addresses some of the other questions you have in the list that, you know, some viruses have a, almost a hit and run type of strategy, get in, make some more virus and get out before, before the host responds. Um, and others want to set up shop and, and be there for a long time. Like, like the retroviruses, which integrate or the, or the herpes viruses, which form these sort of stable genomic circles uh, or, or maintain like true latency, like Epstein-Barr virus and just sort of sit there in the cell. Um, what, what, would, what would govern that? Like why would HIV endogenize and other ones just want to, you know, multiply and lyse the cells and then the latent ones or the lysogenic ones are the strangest because they'll be latent days, months, weeks, years, sometimes lifetimes. And then when the host encounters stress or certain other problems, now all of a sudden they turn, let's say, lytic. Why do you think that would happen? How could the virus be monitoring or is it monitoring the host's immune state? Yeah. I mean, there's a whole lot of different answers to, to that because, you know, every virus is kind of wanting to do a different thing. I mean, ultimately the viruses, the goal of the virus simply is to, is to propagate and, and whether it does so at the cost of the host or not uh, kind of depends on the virus in some senses, you know, some viruses kill you because they're, they're, replicating so quickly or, or they're so pathogenic for other reasons. Um, and others, others don't kill you or, or, you know, make you sick at all, or seemingly don't make you sick at all yet. They're all still propagating. Um, and, and, you know, you, if you look at some of the most successful viruses that, that are truly, you know, can infect you or pathogenic, you, so you, we, we actually have endogenous viruses in our genomes um, that if, if you work really hard, you can force them to make particles, but, but we've just lived with them for millions of years and they're just in our genome all the time. Um, whether they were previously, uh, you know, pathogenic, nobody really knows. Um, but something like Epstein-Barr virus, something like 90% of people are infected with that. And, and we pretty much all live with it. The virus certainly transmits from person to person, but we just, you know, and I, I don't know that people get any benefit from being infected with Epstein-Barr virus, which addresses another question you have in there. But there can be some benefits to, to being infected with things. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, what, what are some? Like, I know, uh, I guess viral DNA is responsible for a mother to be able to create a placenta that separates the fetus from the mother immunologically. Yeah. So, so, you know, probably the best example of, of why being infected with things is and, and surviving, of course, obviously you always want to survive. Um, but, but, you know, there, there's absolutely a, a very clear example of, of where uh, having a lifetime of exposure and success, success in, in, in combating whatever the pathogen is, be it viral, fungal, bacterial, uh, whatever, 
um, would, would be uh, the work that people have done using uh, mice and laboratory mice that are either kept completely pathogen free or, or allowed to, to become infected sort of naturally with things. And, and, and so this is work by Dave Massapust and, and, and out of Minnesota. And there's another group in, in Germany that also uh, worked in this area. And basically um, what happens is, is the mice that, that, that have a lifelong history of exposure to pathogens and certainly including viruses, if whenever they get challenged with something new, they have a much better chance of surviving it than does an animal that's never seen any pathogens at all and suddenly gets hit with something um, uh, pathogenic. Um, and, and, it, and it's essentially, in some senses, it's thought that the immune response in an organism is, is kind of always on a knife's edge. And, and if you, in terms of pathogenesis or, or protection, because the immune response will both get rid of the pathogens, but it, but it does so in many, in many ways in, in kind of a blitzing style that, that, that can cause collateral damage. Um, and so, you know, when you have a lifetime of exposure to, to viruses that, that are, are apathogenic or mildly pathogenic that, that, that have evolved with us, um, or with the organism in question to, to not kill it, it trains the immune system in these organisms to not overreact to things. You essentially sort of raise, you could call it tolerance or whatever, um, you sort of raise your, your threshold of, of, uh, of danger in a sense. Um, this is, this is uh, not the danger idea is, a, is, a, is, an, old hype, is an old concept, um, not, certainly not my concept. But, but yeah, I mean, certainly there, there is a benefit to the host to, to, to survive these, these things. Um, and there's a benefit to the, to the virus to, to not kill the host. Well, what about if you're uh, infected with a virus and you're a carrier, it doesn't hurt you for some reason, but uh, your competition, it, it kills them. So let's say you can have progeny, but, uh, you know, other people you come into contact with, it, it may kill them. And then in that way, it may act to... Uh, you know, to arm you with a weapon that uh, allows you to procreate, but not others. Sure, absolutely, and and you know, obviously that would be a passive issue, and but sure, and and and, and there are certainly examples of where that's been used um, historically uh, to certain people's benefits um, and other people's detriments um, with you know biological warfare. But, but really, you know, if you look over time, you know, millions of years and you can see, uh, you know, there's evidence that, that viruses and, and in this case, humans co-evolve with each other. And, and, you know, while viruses might be, have a very high ability to adapt um, and evolve, um, the regions of the human genome that are responding to those viruses are also the most highly adaptive and evolving genes in our chromosomes. Um, oh, say more about that. What do you mean specifically? Well, so so yeah, there's a one of like the, the best example would be this family of, of proteins called Apobex, um, and I and I can't remember what Apobex stands for, but but there's a whole family of these genes. Um, for example, uh, and a great person who, who works on this is Paul Beanash out of Rockefeller. And, and so this is a family of, of, of proteins that can interact directly with viral genomes in a, in a, in a non-specific way. So, so they would interact with, you know, because the viral genome is not like the human genome. Uh, it has features of that, that, that the immune response can recognize as foreign. 
Um, and so as the viruses evolve to evade those, these, for example, apobec genes uh, can evolve over time. Of course, it's not going to be as fast as what the virus can do, but within the human population, there'll be enough variation in these genes, uh, the kind of in the scenario that you set up that one person might be protected and, and, and the person next to them may not be. Um, this is kind of like the example of where that variation in these host protection genes uh, would allow some people to be protected and others. And then uh, in terms of you know hundreds of thousands of years, if you have continual pressure from this virus, you would, you would select in the human population for people who have those protective genes. And at the same time, the virus is slowly evolving or adapting to the changes that, that, that the genome is, the human genome would be making. So um, in terms of, let's say, HIV, when it becomes part of our DNA, where does it become part of the DNA? And has there ever been an example of it, uh, you know, de-endogenizing and packaging its own variants, or is it, does it just continually do that, for instance, with HIV? even after it's endogenized? Oh, well, that's, so, so as far as we know, the virus, HIV has to integrate into the genome in order for it to make progeny. That, that, that has to happen. So, so that, that's, what you said is exactly what happens. And, and we've actually just, we have a paper just about to be published from our own studies of, of integration, where, where the virus integrates into the genome, Lots of other people have worked on this for a number of years as well. And, and basically, the, the answer to your question is, uh, in the case of HIV, the virus primarily likes to enter, uh, or sorry, I should say, shouldn't say enter, to integrate uh, into regions of DNA that are open, so open chromatin. So first, it, it can't pioneer very effectively and go into closed chromatin. Um, so it looks for open genes, and 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 it pref- seems to prefer open genes that are being, uh, in many cases, actively transcribed. In other words, uh, if it if it integrates into a gene that's open but not doing anything, uh, there will be no transcription of that gene, and therefore no transcription of of the virus. Uh, so no progeny. Um, if it goes into a gene that's open and being actively used, uh, then that cell will be producing virus, and and, and actually that might end up killing the cell because now it's making a lot of virus and, it, and the virus will, will eventually kill the cell um, or the immune response will recognize that cell and kill the cell. Yeah, integrating into a more, uh, either a non-expressed but open gene or, or a low expressed gene might, might then favor kind of this slow profile that you have with the retroviruses where some cells get integrated but don't make virus and they can sit there for years because those cells are very stable and they can even undergo a process called homeostatic proliferation, where you have have the integrated virus in the cell that's the cell is resting, but over time it divides very slowly just to keep itself stable over time for the lifetime of the host. And so when it does that, it will actually carry the virus into the daughter cells. Um, and that's been shown uh, uh, by John Coffin's group uh, at, at, at Tufts and, and Frederick very effectively that, that this, this is a way that the virus can perpetuate itself within the host. So even though, for instance, HIV is endogenized, it still retains its ability to create variants and do all kinds of things. And in a sense, it creates its own, it, sorry, maintains its identity as a virus. It doesn't become part of us and then absolutely. You know, doesn't, yeah, amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, and we actually are, are we actually have other endogenous retroviruses um, that are distantly related to HIV. Um, in our genomes that that are with us for millions of years, these are called they're called HERVs, uh, human endogenous retroviruses, 
Um, at some point, they were probably pathogenic and, and transmitted, uh, but they do not seem to be so anymore. And they, they have deletions in, in parts of their genome, so they're not full viruses anymore, but they can clearly be recognized as, as being a viral origin. Um, and it's actually thought, interestingly, that, that, that these herbs and, and other sort of related things, line elements and things, actually are part of what has allowed us to evolve to be where we are. So, so these, in this, you know, in these kinds of situations, you, you would envision that, that these, that these retroviruses were carrying a gene that they needed for themselves, but also turned out to be beneficial to the host. Um, and so, so we were better off having them and being infected with them. And so they became sort of a stable part of our genome. And maybe that's sort of partially how humans have evolved to, to the current, uh, state. Have you, have you, has there ever been an example of a virus de-endogenizing, either during active infection or later on? Mm. You know, like HIV. Well, I mean, you're kind of, you're almost kind of like, it's almost kind of like a cure question, right? So in other words, can you, can you make that, can you make that virus uh, leave the mm. genome permanently? Mm. Um, I, there's a lot of people who would love to know the answer to that. Uh, <laughs> well, you might have to, you might be able to CRISPR-Cas9 it out. Yes, of course. And there, there are people working on that as a cure strategy that the problem with that strategy is, is how do you deliver the CRISPR-Cas9 to every cell in your body that could be potentially infected? Um, but absolutely, it's a, it's, it's, it, is a, it is a viable hypothesis to try to do that. Um, the delivery is the problem. Uh, I have to say, no, I don't know of an example, um, uh, a definitive example where, where you can show that the virus actually an integrated virus truly leaves a cell uh, without without an intervention like a CRISPR-Cas9 type of situation. I don't, I I don't, know, any, I don't know of any natural way that that would happen. But I just thought of something kind of, you know, right now it's science fiction, but what if um, you identified, a, you know, a herb and you knew which um, which genes to add to it to make it active again? Mm-hmm. And you used a therapy, a CRISPR-Cas9 therapy to, uh, or, or some kind of viral vector to uh, endogenize the missing pieces for a given, you know, virus that's already been endogenized into you to make it active again. Yeah. I don't know. That'd be crazy if, if someone did that. It would probably be really bad news, but. Uh, it, might, just... it might, it might be dangerous. <laughs> it's, it might, it might, it might not work. Um you know, I think people, there's actually a fair number of people that, that think about these things. And, and even um, uh, in the case of the herbs, there, there is a line of research looking into uh, herbs and targeting herbs as a way to, to deal with HIV. It hasn't been terribly successful yet, but, but basically what you can find is that, is that in HIV-infected cells, uh, you can sometimes also see herbs becoming expressed because they may, there might be some shared reasons for them, components of their genome to become reinvigorated, I guess you could say. Wow. And then, so there's some thoughts of, tar- of using the fact that HERV proteins can be expressed in HIV-infected cells to target those cells. Um, the reason why that could theoretically work is that those HERV proteins do not have the same mutation rate as what HIV would, so they would be more of a stable target. That's kind of the concepts behind that that um, strategy. Um, it, it hasn't borne out quite yet. I think people are still working on it, um, but it still remains a viable uh, strategy. Has anyone mapped herbs and 
looked for analogs, you know, and active viruses out there. I mean, people always say, oh, you know, 8% of our DNA is viral DNA. Well, how do they know? Unless there's an analog out there, you know, or oh, they just, it's just sure. I mean, I, I am certainly not an expert in in, in that level of this, um, but absolutely, you know, just in the in the human genome, th- these things have been mapped, um, and and then you can just look at the sequence and you can align that to sequences of things that are out in real life still, um, and, and absolutely, you can find uh, you can you can put them into the, the uh, you know families of other viruses that are related to and and so on. Um, but you know, I, I can't give you any crystal clear examples here, um, except to say that, that for sure people do it. And it, it, there are definitely, um, you know, uh, relationships between the herbs or, or the line elements or, or, or other, you know, things of this type, um, and, and things that are still, uh, so to say in circulation, um, they have to help me find a herb master that I can, I can speak to in the future, you know? Well, Doug, Doug Nixon uh, at, at Cornell Medical Center uh, has done all the HERV work in the context of HIV, and, and he would really be able to tell you um, much more detail on this uh, than, than myself. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, well um, continuing on, you know, when people get infected with a given virus, there seems to be a latency period. Yes. Days, weeks, months, sometimes yes. years. Why do you think that exists? Do you think it's just the virus needs time to replicate. So there's quote unquote enough cells infected or. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't know of any example where it's years. Um, but, but I think some, some of them certainly replicate very slowly. Others replicate very fast. And, and, and there's, there's certainly a threshold, uh, after which if the virus is replicated enough, it will overwhelm the host, the innate host defenses that are present. So every cell kind of has resistance mechanisms, um, and, and you're going to need to to overcome that in order. First of all, in order for the virus to replicate, it has to overcome these innate uh, defenses that it has, and, and and probably a high proportion of of the infecting virions in any case don't surpass those thresholds. But then, you know, really, it only takes one to make it past the defenses, and then it, and then if that cell starts to produce more virus, then then you then you're infected. Um, and so, so the delay time is, is related to both the innate responses and surpassing those, plus the, the, the critical threshold of having enough virus to cause symptoms. Um, you know, and symptoms, of course, is, is really only manifested by, you know, that's the, that's the manifestation of the immune response against the virus. Okay. Well, once, once a virus is inside a cell, um, if you imagine it as, you know, someone sitting you know, in front of a huge control board, you know, the, the virus does seem to co-opt cellular machinery, yeah. know, various ones to, to do its bidding. Um, do you think that they can use cell to cell signaling, you know, extracellular vesicles or anything like that to communicate? Yeah, that's a you. I saw that question there. So, so I don't know, you know, if you want to invoke communication, you're kind of asking whether the virus is alive. I, you know, I, I don't believe that, um, the virus, Back to the virus. New quorum sensing. I wonder if the virus could sure. do some kind of quorum sensing where it says, okay, how many other infected cells are there in my local microenvironment like me? Yeah. So yeah, I agree with you that bacteria do this. Parasites can do things like this. Um, you know, in both cases, those are live organisms. Um, here in this case, 
you know, viruses can affect their environment for sure by affecting, by changing the, the cell that they're in. Um, you know, for example, uh, you know, some viruses will, um, they co-opt the host cell protein uh, machinery and therefore the, the host cell stops making proteins of its own and it gets co-opted to make nothing but viral proteins or a high proportion of our proteins. That might cause then that cell uh, to be sensed in its local environment in a different way um, because the, the cell surface proteins may change. Um, maybe it becomes detached from, from a sort of a, a basement membrane or, or whatnot. Um, but I don't know of sort of other than the, the local environment recognizing that something funny was going on with that cell. I don't think like, you know, a viral infected cell wouldn't be talking to another viral infected cell and saying, hey, let's, let's do something together. Not, that's not going to happen. You can have situations like like there's a, a thing called syncytia, which is basically where one cell merges with another cell, which merges with another cell. So you get this big multinucleated thing that's a cell, but it but it's it's the conglomerate of cells, and and viruses can cause that to happen. Um, so I guess in that sense, you could imagine sort of a scenario where you're talking about where where you know one infected cell cause you know basically meets up with another infected cell and and they merge and and do on, but, but they're not really in a sense communicating. They're just kind of aggregating. Um, well, if you did an experiment, I don't know if this has been done, but if you did an experiment where you had some viral infected cells and then you looked at their profile of EVs that they're putting out um, and you saw, let's say viral DNA, in most of them or all of them, maybe then you could say, well, it looks like at least the virus is uh, causing the cellular machinery to put out more of itself. Maybe it could be a method of spread. I mean, I don't know. Not you mean extracellular vesicles, EVs? Yeah, what if it um, changes the payload yeah. of them? Well, certainly that happens. You know, certainly yeah. there, there are EVs that come off of, of every cell, probably, um, whether it's infected or not. Um, and, you know, I, would, I guess I would say here that I, I doubt... I, I don't know for sure, but my my strong feeling here would be that EVs are not, unless they contain the full genome of a virus, maybe that's possible for some RNA viruses. Maybe an RNA virus could transmit that way, but but I think it would be hard pressed for an EV to be infectious. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I think it would be it would be challenging. Well, what if you compare an EV to a virus? You know, they contain genetic material. They can readily enter into cells. They can change gene expression. I mean, in a way, they're like a virus with a different hat on. Yeah. Not exact, but they're somewhat similar, maybe. Right. No, I, I, I get where you're coming from. I mean, very few viruses are only a protein shell and the genome. Most viruses that I can think of are much more complex composition than that. So, so you might carry part of the... Uh, necessary transcription units with you, or you might bring with you components that allow you to initially evade the the first host immune responses, uh, the intracellular responses. You know, so, some something that gives those viruses a leg up a little bit whenever they get in to what is really a very harsh environment once they enter a cell, because uh, there's you know proteases everywhere. Basically, all kinds of strategies the cells are going to use to 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 get rid of anything that doesn't belong. And, and I don't know that the, that the EVs would be able to effectively deliver the genomic material in, a, in, in any type of focused way, uh, for sure. It would just be totally random. 
like I said, I'm not saying it's impossible. And, and this is kind of one of these things that if you believe it to be true, you could probably find a situation where it happens. But I don't know if it's a primary mechanism that's used. Okay. Yeah. It's just, I mean. Oh, it's a fantastic question. And I think it's it's going to be one of these case-by-case bases where, you know, if you, if you talk to, to 20 scientists, you're probably going to find some that say, yeah, absolutely, it could happen. Uh, and then others that'll say, like me, will say, well, maybe it'll happen. And you'll probably find some that'll say, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm finding. Yeah. yeah. Well, the reason I ask is that I've seen viruses, you know, obviously use cells as tools. I've seen cells use viruses as tools, you know, like mm-hmm. bacteria pulling in pieces of viral DNA and integrating it into their genes yeah. and then expressing spike proteins themselves and poking holes in other bacteria. So viruses are weird. They're like this vast floating cloud library of ability, but yet they also, you know, have, I, I don't know, I guess I, I guess you anthropomorphize it, but they have their own agency because they, they enter into cells and change them and cause them to do all kinds of things. So, it's weird. They are a tool, but they uh, they use tools as well. Yeah, you know, I think you know, being an immunologist, you know, one of the most fascinating as you know types of viruses out there for me, uh, actually more fascinating than, than HIV, are the herpes viruses. And the reason why they're so fascinating is because they've evolved essentially to carry copies or or analogs of our own genes uh, that they have then modified or somehow. Um, have gotten a modified version of to allow them to evade immune responses or to, or to modulate immune responses. You know, they, some, some great examples, you know, and and it's maybe a little complicated here, but, but um, they have analogs of cytokines that, that our immune system uses basically to sort of marshal responses but they have analogs of these cytokines that an infected cell will start to express these viral proteins that, that are, are just, the, they're, they're, they're a copy of the cytokine that's just a little bit wrong, uh, that then does something different uh, and, and, and essentially steers the immune response in the wrong direction. Uh, it's really quite fascinating that, that this has evolved. Um, and, and there's multiple examples of these types of things. It's not just herpes virus, pox viruses also do this as well. Kind of the bigger the virus is in terms of genome size, the more it's co-opted uh, and included aspects of the immune response as a, as a way to subvert the immune response and, and perpetuate itself. It's really fascinating. Is there any way to, um, and it just may sound silly, but tell how old a virus is or how long it's been in existence? By looking at its uh, DNA and capsid and everything, are there some that we know for sure predated others? I mean, without having, uh, so I'm not a, I'm not a great person to answer that question. Certainly, there, you know, you can look at viral origins. For, you know, this has been done very well, for example, with HIV. Um, so, so Beatrice Hahn uh, at University of Pennsylvania has has looked at the origins of HIV for years, uh, going back into the, the to the monkey variants, the SIVs. Um, and looking to see where, where those, and you know, how did that trans, how did that come to humans? And, and in order to do that, she, she would, would look for the associated virus in the monkeys and then compare its genome to the human genome, uh, to the virus that, that, that infects humans. And, and then, and then, you know, basically do comparative evolutionary uh, biology on these and, and really try to understand, okay, what changed in this virus to allow to infect humans? And so she spent, you know, a large part of her career studying this. And you can do this for many other viruses as well. Um, oftentimes, you know, you want to go back to, you, you know, 
even fossil samples and try to find things or, or whatnot. Um, but but I you know I'm not an evolutionary biologist. There definitely are strategies you can you can do this, but you need to you need to look at related viruses and then compare them and look at how things diverged over time. You know, and then you can calculate time. If you know like the mutation rate of a virus, you could then uh, confer backwards uh, if you know uh, related species that differ by a certain percentage, and you can you can track back in terms of you know millions of years to 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 find what a common ancestor would be. So if I get infected by a virus, and let's say I, somehow I'm the first one, you know, I wander into the jungle and zoonotically something jumps into me. <laughs> You're um, probably going to die, but yeah. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, this, this, yeah. Here, here comes the question. So, if I label myself number one, and I, you know, go back to my village and I collapse and like cough on somebody, and they're number two, they get infected, and then yep. three and four and five. By the time it gets to number twenty or number one hundred, what do you think will happen to that person versus me, number one? And why? Well, how do you think the virus will change? I mean, in that kind of scenario, I imagine the virus isn't changing much at all. Uh, you know, certainly there is some variation from person to person, but I, I think in that, in that scenario, um, that rapid level of transmission, the virus is not going to need to change very much. Um, you know, evolution of viruses takes years uh, uh, between people. Like if you think about flu, there's seasonal variations every year, there's shift and there's drift shift. I like HIV changes well, you have a quasi species in it. Yes. So, so you do have, of course, have quasi species within a person and you have diversity within the HIV across people. And yes, indeed, within one person, you have a tremendous level of diversity. But in order for that diversity in one person to shift an entire population, it still takes a long time. You, you know, it has to be transmitted from host to host to host. You've got, you've got competing uh, host immune responses going against it. And you've got the variation in those host immune responses, which will differ between, from person to person to person. And so, so in the case of HIV, you know, you, you, you may have a more difficult time to go into one host and an easier time to go into another host, depending on, on the level of differences between those people at the genetic level. So, you know, in your scenario, I, my guess would be, no, that virus probably doesn't need to mutate very much. You know, it's probably little benefit for it uh, to kill its host so quickly um, in the long run, but in the short run, it's propagating. And that's, you know, if you think the virus cares, that's all it cares about um, is gotcha. propagating. All right. Last question. Um, if I get a virus from someone that's like on death's door because of the virus and versus if I get it from someone that, you know, doesn't feel anything, they're asymptomatic. Do you think I'm going to get very sick if I get sick from the really sick person where there's, it's, there's so many factors that make me me that that we know correlation. Of course, it depends on the nature of the virus, but but no, I, I don't think that you can immediately predict. Um, I mean, COVID is here is the perfect example. We have no idea why uh, some people have asymptomatic infection and others uh, get sick uh, and die. We we really just at this point we don't know what that association. You know, this is getting into sort of host genomics. Um, and, and certainly there are some associations with, with different genetic polymorphisms and, and disease severity for, for many different viruses. Um, and there's some emerging information about SARS-CoV-2 as well. But um, no, I think, I think it's, it's unless, it, you know, in your scenario, you have the virus has a, a display of being completely apathogenic or being pathogenic. So therefore, no, you can't tell if it was always pathogenic. Um, then you're probably going to have pathogenesis. 
but but it's it, I think it's difficult to predict. Now, now that doesn't say it's going to be forever impossible to do so. Um, you know, certainly there are uh, genetic polymorphisms in the human population that will predispose you to be uh, more susceptible to things. You know, particularly if you have polymorphisms in various immune response related things, that can be very problematic um, and and therefore be a predictor of pathogenesis. Yeah, Mike, I just want to thank you for coming and, and I appreciate it. What, how can people find out more about your work in particular? I have a website, which is uh, betslab.org. And, and people could read up on my lab and my lab members and, and even see some of our work. And that would be a great place to start. Very good. Well, thank you for coming, Mike. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you again for the invitation. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.